When Jesus Christ was born in poverty and obscurity, although he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world, his birth was largely ignored. On the night that he was born, his mother laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Mary and Joseph had traveled to the little town of Bethlehem. And the reason for this is given in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 to 2. We read these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The decree was an imperial edict calling for a census to be taken of the entire Roman world for the purposes of taxation. But as we will see, the decree actually came from the sovereign hand of God which had critical bearing on the birth of Christ. Over seven centuries before this event, the prophet Micah had written these words, and we read them earlier. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, 1 to 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient Israel days. The very means by which God brought about the fulfillment of this prophecy was this imperial edict issued by the pagan emperor Caesar Augustus. Luke chapter 2 and verses 3 to 5. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so in compliance with the decree of Caesar Augustus, and under the sovereign hand of God, Joseph, along with his very pregnant betrothed, made the 140-kilometer journey. Up from the comparatively lower-lying countryside of Galilee from the town of Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem in the hill country of Judea in specific fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And all of this occurred just as the Scriptures said it would happen. And Caesar Augustus unknowingly played an important part in this story. God was using this Roman emperor to accomplish his own sovereign purposes and plans. God was controlling world events so that the Messiah would be born in the very place that God determined from of old. Caesar Augustus may have been ruling the Roman Empire, but it was God who was in charge. Augustus may have issued the decree that brought this young couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but it was the eternal and sovereign decree of God 
that was overruling all of these events so that his Messiah would be born in the place that he decreed. As Calvin comments, For the governor or whoever was Caesar's minister, in fulfilling his commands, is God's secret herald, summoning Mary to the place divinely appointed. In fact, Luke's whole narrative takes the view that the faithful may learn how Christ, from his very nativity, was brought forth by the hand of God. For it is both explicit and implicit in Scripture that all of the political forces of this world, without them even knowing it, are being guided and directed by the sovereign hand of God for the sake of the glory of His name and for the redemption of His people. Every single detail was in the hand of the Almighty and Sovereign God. Yet, when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, there was no one to receive Him. And thus Jesus failed to receive the royal welcome that He so deserved. Luke tells us in verses 6 to 7, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, as was the custom of the day, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I just love the simplicity of this verse. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's all it says. She gave birth. That's all it says. I wish there was more than that. It's not very good material for a preacher. So I want to just, if you allow me just for a moment, to indulge in just a, a little bit of sanctified imagination. And uh, you can go home and forget it if you like. But I can just imagine that Joseph must have been completely beside himself with curiosity at this point. Uh, when Jonathan, our oldest son, was born, all of our family in New Zealand was very curious about how he was going to turn out due to having a Korean mother and uh, a Kiwi father. Actually, he turned out to be really good-looking indeed. But you know that's got nothing to do with me. But his very lovely mother. But imagine, just imagine if you knew that your wife was going to give birth to the Son of God. The God-man. You might have had a few interesting imaginations about what this child was going to look like. So here is Joseph, no doubt pondering in his mind, what was this child going to look like? What was he going to be like? As he sat there holding his wife's hand through the long, silent night of her labor, perhaps speaking encouraging words into his dear young wife's ears, as she spent hours in labor in a place that afforded no comforts, no doctors, no midwives or nurses, no mother, no family. Just a young girl in her teens with her young husband at her side. And finally, at the culmination of her labor, at the glorious moment that Mary pushed one more time, out came the Son of God. And he cried the cry of life. 
Or as the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Emmanuel, the God of eternity, entered into time and space. The Lord of immensity, the Lord of omnipresence, was confined to a body no more than about 10 pounds in weight and under two feet in length. And that, and that little life came out into the arms of the father, that young father, and neither of them could really fathom the depths of what was going on. And everybody around them had absolutely no idea. And then it says most interestingly in verse 7 again, we read that she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A manger, as you all know well, is a feeding trough for animals. And to understand what an indignity this is, we simply need to remember who Jesus was and is. Luke describes him as Mary's firstborn son, Luke 2.7. But he was so much more than that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this child in the virgin's womb was the very Son of God. He was the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15, with the unique status as God, the one and only Son. He was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the creator of this universe, the maker of heaven and earth, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all that lives. And so what kind of welcome did he deserve? Jesus deserved to have every person and every nation Come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature and the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, to come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself offer him worship, with the rocks crying out glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is the Son of God. And anything less than that, anything less than absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to his divine dignity. But what kind of welcome did he receive? What kind of accommodation was he given? Well, as Luke tells us again in verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here is the irony of the incarnation when the Son of God came to earth, the maker of the universe and all of its vast immensity, he could not even get a room. But as Calvin rightly observes, such was the manner of his birth. For he had put on our flesh, 
to the end that he might empty himself for our sake. So he was pushed into a stable and lodged in a manger, denied a place of hospitality among men, so that heaven might lie open to us, not only as a place in which to lodge, but as a new eternal homeland and inheritance, and that angels should receive us to dwell with them. While the welcome that Jesus received or didn't receive has enormous spiritual significance, the fact that he was unrecognized and unacknowledged showed that he was coming to live among sinners and demonstrates the very humility that would eventually lead him to the cross. The humility of his birth became the pattern for his entire life. Eventually, Jesus humbled himself to the very death that he would die for sinners like you and me. But there were hints of that already in his birth. The sufferings that commenced with his incarnation continued right through to his crucifixion. The same body that was wrapped in swaddling cloths would one day be wrapped in a burial shroud. The manger thus points to the cross and to the grave, showing how we are to be saved by the humility of the Saviour. Nevertheless, it was not right for this event to go unrecognized. His birth was the most important event in all of history. Somehow it had to be celebrated. Somehow it had to be explained. So that people would understand that the Son of God had become a man to save sinners. And so God sent angels of all creatures to tell people the good news. And what is even more surprising than the appearance of the angels is that the very first people to hear the good news were shepherds. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is the most unlikely group to make the proclamation to. At the time of Jesus, shepherding did not bring in much money. If a shepherd owned any land, it was not normally enough to live on. And so as a result, he would normally hire himself out to someone else in order to work for wages. Shepherds then were peasants, located at the very bottom of the scale of social power and privilege and prestige. And so now if you were a public relations agent and you were designing a campaign to announce that the saviour of the world had been born, the very last people you would probably go to would be a bunch of shepherds out in a very isolated region. You would want to go to the people that have the most influence. You would want to go to the people that have the ear of the world. First of all, you might consider the chief priests and the scribes who were the teachers of the day. Or perhaps the Sanhedrin who were the ruling body in Israel. Or you might go to the Pharisees because they were certainly looking for the Messiah. 
You might even want to send a memo or a press release to Augustus to let him know that the true saviour of the world had just been born. But to shepherds, probably not. But that's exactly where the Lord sent the message. News of the birth of the Son of God was first made known not to the religious elite or the secular elite of the land, but to the lowly inhabitants of the area, busy with other matters, not even looking for a saviour, just looking after their sheep. And so by visiting the shepherds in their fields and not the rulers in their courts or the priests in their temple, the angel revealed the grace of God to humankind. His announcement was a gracious revelation Demonstrating that the good news was for the poor, for sinners, for outcasts, for very ordinary people like the shepherds. Remember Mary's prayer that we looked at a few weeks ago? Verses 50 to 53 of Luke chapter 1. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Good news comes to the peasants, not the rulers, not the religious elite. The lowly are lifted up. You see, the shepherds were not looking for a saviour. Instead, as Luke points out in chapter 2 and verse 8, they were simply looking after their sheep. In other words, the good news does not come to them because they were looking for God, because they had found their way to Him. But God in grace sought them out. Verse 8, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The religious are looking for the Messiah, but they don't find him. The shepherds are not looking for him. They're just looking after their sheep, but they are found by God. This was just a regular night of shepherding, just like any other night. Here were these shepherds doing what they always did, working shifts to guard the sheep during the night hours, when suddenly the tranquil normalcy of a night of shepherding was interrupted in the most amazing way. Verse 9, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. It was a dark night, and then all of a sudden, it was emblazoned with the highest of all created beings, standing in the midst of the lowliest of all earthly people. The angel of the Lord suddenly, instantaneously, immediately, with no anticipation at all, appeared in their midst. And if that's not enough, the text adds these words. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What a scene this must have been. Here's a group of very ordinary, 
common, simple, poor working men. They probably had no really interesting experiences in life. Certainly nothing that could remotely compare to this. And then suddenly the fields in which they are working on that dark night are ablaze with the brilliance of the glory of God. And we read that this was such a frightening experience that the first thing that the angels tell the shepherds was not to be afraid. Verse 10a, And the angel said to them, Fear not. And then the, then the angel tells them why they shouldn't fear. Verse 10b, it begins with the word for, it's an explanation. Do not fear, why? For, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angelic message is a command not to fear, followed by a reason. Don't be afraid, he says. This news is not bad news, guys. In fact, it's really good news that will produce great joy, which shall be for all peoples. And what is the news that produces great joy? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy, says the angel. There has been born a Savior, and He is Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born. In Matthew one twenty one, the angel told Joseph that Mary, your betrothed, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. As Luke would later write in Acts chapter 10 verse 43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is news of great joy for humanity. And it's better news than the discovery of a cure for cancer. Infinitely better. Cancer may rob you of this life. But sin is a deadly disease that will rob you of eternal life itself. This is the deadly peril that humanity is in. Why? The sad truth is that from the very beginning, men and women everywhere have rejected God by doing things their own way. And rebelling against God, they are saying to Him, Go away. I don't want you telling me what to do. Leave me alone. And this is what God has done. His judgment on rebellious creatures is to withdraw for them, to cut them off from himself, permanently, and in many cases, eternally. And since God is the source of life and all good things, to be cut off from God means death and judgment. We are worthy of nothing but eternal condemnation. And if this is your condition this morning, then I want to tell you 
that there is good news of great joy for all peoples. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And did you notice those little words there in the text? I just love those little words. Unto you. These words are like a a tag on a Christmas present that says to and from. The angels were placing a tag on the angel on the manger that said to you from God. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Again in Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Here is good news that takes on personal significance for every person who repents and trusts in him. God has sent a savior to you. If you will believe, turn to him, embrace him, trust in him as your savior from sin and guide to everlasting joy. The highest and best joy is for those who receive salvation. This is great joy, says the angels. This is the highest joy. This is the best joy. This is joy that lasts, that doesn't get broken a few weeks after the presents are unwrapped, that doesn't wear out. It doesn't lose its tarnish. This is the joy that comes to those who receive the grace of salvation. The highest and the best joy is for those whose sins are forgiven. For those for whom the Savior died and paid the penalty for their sins. All of God's loved and elect people. The way to be saved through Him is not by works of merit. Salvation is entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I believe that's the point of verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, the angels proclaim, and on earth peace. What kind of peace? Salvation peace. Peace with God. The war is over. The battle has ended. God is no longer our enemy and we his enemy, but reconciliation has come. The angels are praising God and giving glory in heaven because he has brought salvation to earth. Glory to God in the highest. The adoration of the angels is over the good news of the Savior's birth. This is pure, perfect, holy praise given to God because he is supremely worthy because he has sent 
His Son to save sinners. He has sent Jesus to earth to bring peace among people on earth. In the highest place, glory to God. In the lowest place, salvation to sinners. So remember, says Calvin, that this was the cause and the purpose that made God reconcile us to himself through his only begotten Son, that publishing the riches of his grace and boundless mercy, he should lend luster, glory to his name. And then notice the final statement of verse 14. It sounds very strange, doesn't it? Among those with whom he is pleased. Does that mean God brings salvation to those who do well and those who please him? Well, no, it's actually not a very good translation, the ESV. A better and more literal translation would read, people of his good pleasure. Or people that God is pleased to grant grace to. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people of his good pleasure. People he is pleased to bestow grace upon. That's what the word pleased means there. Salvation belongs to people of God's good pleasure. Salvation belongs to people that God is pleased to give it to. It's not people who have earned it. It's not people who have pleased God. It's God who has given it because it's his pleasure to give it. He is pleased to give it. That's what the, the wording means. Salvation belongs to those whom God is pleased to give it to. It is the gracious outflow of God's boundless happiness and guided by his infinite wisdom. And as such, it is entirely free and gracious and merciful. Salvation from start to finish is a gracious and sovereign work of God. It is not the result of what people have done. The angels would hardly be rejoicing and praising and glorifying God because of what people have done, or not done, or will do, or will not do. The angels are not rejoicing because people have merited salvation. That would be the dumbest thing on earth. They are glorifying God because even though no one can merit, God is pleased to give it. Of his own good pleasure. As Calvin says, it's a declaration of the source of that peace which the angels have announced that we should know it to be gratuitous, the flowing forth of God's sheer loving kindness. Just as an earthly father takes great delight in buying gifts for his children and seeing the delight on their faces when they opened their presents on Christmas morning, so it was our Heavenly Father's good pleasure that He would give His Son to us on that very first Christmas. And then again, some three decades later, on that very first Easter. This is the best gift that anyone could ever give. As one of Jesus' own beloved disciples once said, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I wonder if you'd please join me as we, we pray together and thank God for this wonderful gift. Our dearest Father, it's with great thankfulness and deep gratitude of heart that we acknowledge you this morning as our Saviour. Because this is not something that comes from us, but something that comes from you. It is a gift of pure grace. We can't even comprehend why you would be so gracious as to give it to us. But we thank you. And we pray this Christmas for those who do not know Christ. We pray that at this Christmas season, people's hearts might be turned towards the Saviour. And while this world is doing everything it can to cover up the reality of Christ, completely blurring the celebration of his birth, the concept of the incarnation, the truth of salvation, Lord, may we speak boldly. Grant us the privilege of leading others to the knowledge of Christ. These things we ask for his glory. Amen.